listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Jaffe, an amazing, amazing journalist and writer, as well as my co-hosts, Lauren and Annie, myself, Charlie, hopefully going to have an amazing, amazing interview. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. Partly because um, just before we had our last scheduled interview, uh, myself and Lauren got COVID. So <laughs> that was a fun time. Um, we might talk about a li- little bit about <laughs> how that all came about. And it also made me think very much about the balance of work and love. And that's what Sarah Jaffe's book is all about. So welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you for having me. And I'm so very glad that you are all doing better. Absolutely. It was a long journey of recovery. First of all, the major symptoms, but just the exhaustion uh, comes in and feeling ready for thinking about things has been a bit of a bit of a yeah trek. But here we are and happy to be here, although in the interim it's gotten a lot hotter. Uh, so we're all sweating a little bit. Windows are a little bit ajar and that may affect some audio. Uh, but I haven't got a fan on, which is something I thought about very briefly until I realised that would completely ruin everything. So, <laughs> thinking about the book, Work Won't Love You Back. Uh, it's an amazing book we've all read and enjoyed thoroughly. Um, it looks at a wide variety of the types of paid and unpaid work that society romanticises as labours of love uh, and ignores as the sites of struggle and exploitation. Uh, that's a little summary of mine. Would you add anything to that, Sarah? That's a pretty good summary of, of the book, yeah. Um, the way that uh, capitalism wants to cannibalise everything we love and turn it all into work. So, thinking first, when I... Before I read the book, the thing I was thinking about, and I did get a lot of, uh, but I ended up getting so much more from it, uh, extra things I wasn't expecting, including just the histories that you included, really, really lovely, just hit at some points and I sort of wondered to myself why I didn't know these things before. Um, But the thing before I read it was I was thinking about work-life balance. You know, we're supposed to love our work. The more you love it, the harder it is to do a half-assed job of it. And that becomes a real problem in teaching a lot of the time. Um, How how do you feel? What do we do about the work-life balance? How how does love (laughs) come into it, basically? Not not ask too big a question, but how does love come into the fact that we want to work, want to have our lives? How do you summarise it? Yeah, I think the reasons that we all work all the time these days are not actually because we want to, right? It's actually because we're not really given much of a choice. And so, you know, we're, we're sort of told that everybody's working hard because their jobs are fulfilling and this is exciting and we really enjoy it. And actually it's because like increasingly we have less security. There's more work you have to do. Um, there's more sort of garbage tasks piled on top of the actual functions of your job. So I'm a freelance journalist, which means I spend a ton of time pitching and emailing editors and chasing my paychecks and checking my bank account to see if my paycheck has gone through yet so I can pay my bills and all of these other things. And I know for teachers, a lot of work now goes into like recording data and recording test scores and like all of that junk. Right. And so, you know, it's all of this extra stuff that's piled on top of the part of the job that you actually went into the field to do that is really expanding our time. But we're sort of told that this is necessary to the job that you love, you know, which is just crap. 
right? Like a lot of people who were journalists at one point in time had full-time jobs. And just because that is like less and less a thing right now doesn't mean that it's an inherent facet of journalism to be precarious and freelance and struggling all the time. Um, it means that capital has figured out that it can get away with having people like me not as full-time employees and not getting any benefits and having to hustle and scramble and make sure we get paid and spend a bunch of our time chasing getting paid. So, you know, the, the reasons we work hard and long hours are not because we love it. Um, it's rather in spite of that, that we sometimes manage to still maintain some level of affection for some of these things that we do. Definitely. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good summary. I was really, really, yeah, enjoyed. Well, I really enjoyed the way that you structured the book as well in terms of having all these different types of work, both paid and unpaid. You starting off with the family and then thinking about, you know, domestic work. And it sort of highlighted for me just how these things are similar, how sometimes they're different. Mm -hmm. But there were times when I was also just sort of shocked at the things that I didn't know and thinking about even things like uh, internships, you know, how that links with this labour of love. And even things like the, you know, the gaming industry and the coding that goes into that, I've always thought thought of that as something that everyone who does will love and they of course they're just so good at it they wouldn't possibly be exploited how wrong I was um but yeah one of the things about that structure that you've got each of these different chapters I don't know if this is even a question but I really wanted to say it um what makes that so good to me is that whenever I meet someone um who I want to recommend the book to which is you know I don't meet people that often, but when I do meet them, I want to recommend the book. Um, is even if I don't yet know their occupation, I'm just saying this book's so great. Tell me your job. I'll tell you there's a chapter for you. And invariably, <laughs> I'm able to give them a chapter. Like, this is why you need to read the book. So kudos for you on that, because Thank quite you. frankly, that's been very helpful. And I think I've probably gotten several people to read the book already, buy the book as well. Um, so, you know, a, a fantastic way of putting things and, and just sort of really clarifies it in your mind. So anyone else want to hit up with a question? So I'm not hugging at all. Um, <clears throat> so when we talk about, like a labor of love um how how have you found so my journey has been like it's that insidious thing is like mm-hmm. work will fulfill you like work is the yeah. single thing will, that will fulfill you um and I just wondered how much you you feel that that narrative still or kind of where did that even start like yeah. where did we get where did we get to the point where like we were told that work is a thing that that we should love and yeah. give me my life fulfillment. Yeah, it's really funny, right? So one of the early events that I was doing for the book with, was with Dave Zirin, who's a, a leftist sports writer. And he sent me this article that someone had sent him that was like a photocopied story from like the some Florida newspaper in like 1981 that was like, new problem, workaholism, and like people who are just like addicted to their jobs. But it was like describing all of the things now that like, job ads like say you should be right like more passionate about work than anything and spending hours and hours and hours at the job and blah 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 like that you know all of these things that we're now just expected to do were as recently as you know my lifetime considered bad things and the the growing expectation that like work is going to be fulfilling for more and more people and that we need meaning with work. Um, that 
comes along with sort of a shift in the work that most people do. And as I was saying before, like the lack of security for more and more people in their jobs. So, you know, at the same time as we get deindustrialization, um, the loss of sort of good union factory jobs, coal mining jobs, all of that stuff, um, as those go away, we also get this ratcheting up of this idea that like work is fulfilling and it's meaningful and it's exciting. And it's this shift from like the sort of bargain of the industrial era, which was, you know, for at least a number of mostly white, mostly male workers, you would have a decent job that you could support your family and it would probably not be fun, right? Being a coal miner was awful, awful, awful work, right? Nobody wants to do that. Um, nobody loved it, but it would allow you to have a decent lifestyle when you weren't in the mine. And it would allow you to hopefully give your kid a better lifestyle and they would not have to go down the mine. Um, and that trade-off disappears because Margaret Thatcher wanted to bust the unions, right? Um, not because they wanted to give us better work. But it also sort of incorporates the demands people were making, which is like, we don't actually want to spend 40 years of our lives going down a mine and huffing coal dust and getting black lung and dying early. So capitalism sort of absorbs things. This is, you know, the way we, we understand struggle is like it, it gets absorbed back in um, into a form that capital can use it in unless we win, which, you know, more about winning eventually, I'm sure. And so you get now what's sold to us as this victory for workers that, ooh, our work is meaningful and exciting now, right? Um, but actually, it was a victory for bosses because they pay us less than they did back then um, as a percentage of profits, as a percentage of just like straight up incomes, right? If you look at income charts and sort of productivity charts and all of these things, like the places where it diverges and where capital just starts keeping all of the profits and people are making, you know, functionally the same as they were 40 years ago while, you know, Jeff Bezos has more money than God and is going to space for the hell of it. Um, you know, Jeff Bezos is easy to hate, but there's a lot of people like that. There were like 10 new billionaires in the UK during the pandemic alone, which is just, you know, if that doesn't tell you something is fundamentally wrong, I don't know what does. That's really interesting. So something you were saying then, it also made me think about this kind of, because when I was growing up, sort of, you know, uh, 90s, noughties, um, sort of era when I was sort of coming of age, and it was almost this kind of like weird certain sort of, I think capitalism tried to come up, come up with this sort of feminist idea mm -hmm. that you're a woman, work will be the thing, and like, and actually that's quite an interesting concept as well, yeah. isn't it? How it was co-opted by that movement as to be, yeah. again, like, it's like get out of the kitchen, as it were, but get into your work. But equally, the exploitation that we find there yeah. is actually the same. Well, not the same exploitation, but certainly still exploitation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean... Yeah, I mean, second wave feminism very much sort of got co-opted into this. And if you look at, at that, there's this... You know, there's this classed split, right? I write a lot in the book about the wages for housework movement and the arguments they were making versus like the arguments that someone like Betty Friedan was making, right? Betty Friedan was saying sort of kind of horrifically like 
snotty things about the people who were suited to doing housework because she and college educated white women like her, she thought should be going off and having exciting careers like the men. Um, and that was, you know, a better use of their mind and time. And the problem with housework was not that it was unpaid. It was that it was like mind numbing. Um, Missing, of course, that like most men don't have fulfilling, exciting, thrilling jobs. Most men also had mind numbing physical manual work. And so, you know, arguing that like what women needed was to be equal to men was always sort of an argument of like, well, which men and which women um, and who's going to be left behind doing the work that these women no longer want to be doing. And the answer to that, and again, we saw this during the pandemic when like Sarah did and I forget who the other one was, were sort of cheering that they could get their cleaner back in. And like, well, feminism, I shouldn't have to do this work. And it's like, okay, but there's a woman who's doing the work still. And it's probably a poorer and less like, you know, um, probably immigrant, probably racialized, probably has all sorts of less status than you, you know, telegraph columnist or whatever you are. Um, And so, yeah, like there's a way that a certain strand of feminism just sort of displaced all these questions about work onto other women. Definitely. No. And that's, um, yeah, something that I think I've read some about before, but I think they yeah, definitely crystallised it in a certainly a different way. Um, reading it there with all the other types of work, I think was really helpful. Um, thinking about the different types of work as well, and even that history um, that's brought us, us to this point, um, with, yeah, the industrial industrialization, I suppose, also came a change in how... Um, children were educated and how many of them were Yeah, um, bringing us to this point now it's really hard sometimes to work out what we're really trying to teach children I mean trying to w- work out what Gove was thinking when he wrote the new curriculum um, but yeah obviously I mean, we've, we talk on the show so much about you know the things that make um, it harder to teach and harder to make the children passionate about what they're learning almost to the point where you sometimes think are they making us teach it this badly so that they don't enjoy it so you know in order to easier um the side of the rich and the class war um but when they when you are trying to say to children and encourage them to think about what jobs they're going to choose they often they come up with things you know being on tiktok stars maybe being uh footballers maybe on youtube or maybe some other thing but it also always comes from this point of that they want to be passionate about it. And when I thought about that, often, although teachers themselves or, you know, anyone in education might go, well, maybe TikTok or, you know, football stardom isn't necessarily a thing. But you never really, as a teacher that I've experienced and never seen, um, trying to shift the children away from choosing things that they're passionate about, uh, like that they're going to love, you know, that work that will be the, you know, a labour of love in whatever way. That seems to be natural to children almost. Maybe, like maybe it is natural, like because they just can't conceive of work as a monotonous thing yet at that age. I think they just can't conceive of work at that age. You know what I mean? Like they don't know because they're not doing it. They don't really. Nobody's actually explained to them like what wage labor is, right? So it's like, mm. what do you want to do when you grow up? Well, you're asking them, what do you want to do? Well, what do I like to yeah. do now? I like to play football. You know, I mean, it's not like. They don't know what jobs like, you know, people ask me what I wanted to do when I grew up. I was like, well, my dad owns a restaurant. My mom works in the restaurant. So I don't really have other, you know, I'm not like exposed to a ton of other people's jobs to know what real jobs are like. 
I wanted to write fiction, which my parents were like, you can do whatever you want, except that because that's not a real job. And that's sort of the trap that we put kids in all the time, right? It's like, you should do what you're passionate about and do what you're excited about. And you should be planning for your career from like age three or whatever. Um, I find it very strange in like UK schools, the way that like testing sort of tracks kids very young. Um into like, this is what you're going to study at school. And this is how, this is going to like decide what school you get into when you're like 13. I find yeah. this very strange, even for an American who's like, we're also over-tested in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, so yeah, we ask kids what they want to do when they grow up, when they a, have no idea what work is. They don't know, like if their parents do a job, they don't really know what their parents do. What jobs have they been exposed to? Probably what their parents do. Maybe aunts and uncles, if they're close to them and their teacher, that's who they know. Maybe they've been to a doctor and they know that they're doctors, right? But like, what do you know? Like, I didn't know what a lawyer was when I was eight. You know, I didn't know what, a, you know, advertising executive, since we were talking about Mad Men before we hit record. Like, I, you know, you don't even know that these things exist. There are so many jobs out there. I, what's a management consultant, right? Like some portion of these kids are going to end up being management consultants. They definitely don't know what that is when they're, <laughs> you know, kids. So... You know, I mean, I think it's sort of a ridiculous thing that we ask kids at all, right? Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, I don't know, a person? <laughs> like, hmm. a human? Um, happy? <laughs> Is that a weird question? Like, yeah, it, it's such a weird thing to ask kids in the first place that, like, presumes that they have some ideas about wage labor that are, like, in any way accurate. I also love what you just said there about like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And it's always the answer we expect or, you know, that the people expect is what job do you want? And actually that's the thing, like, no, like kind of, you kind of like kids should turn around and be like, well, yeah, I want to be happy. I want to go traveling. I want to, I don't know, I want enough money that I can get a three bed semi and a dog. Like, <laughs> you know, I'd like a nice relationship. Yeah. Actually, it's really interesting how that is so not in the narrative of what do you want to do when you grow up? It's Sorry, it's interesting as well, though, because um, I feel like I know a lot of adults in work who are still asking themselves what they want to do when they grow up. <laughs> like, you know, there's still, I, I know so many teachers who are constantly looking for, like, the way out, and the way out invariably is based on, you know, maybe some hobby they have or they've watched and they've watched a drag, dragon's den. And they think, right, what we've got to do is collectively find our dragon's den and then this is our way out. So it's kind of, um, I don't know, in the same way that kids are sort of alienated from what work is, yeah. there, are, there are just so many, so many of us that are as well. And mm -hmm. I just wondered, what is that? Is that basically because... Uh, is it a failure of organizing in our workplaces? Is it, um, I mean, I heard you mention on, an, on yep. another podcast, I won't <laughs> mention which one, um, but you said something um, about like the short story of why, why work is shit basically is, uh, is down to two things, the patriarchy and neoliberalism. And, it, it, and are they both the things that, um, are they the reasons we're alienated from work? Like, you know, why is it that my mate Maya is constantly looking for the side hustle, even though she's got a teacher, a job as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, we're alienated from work because work sucks. 
Like work is, <laughs> we're alienated from work because like humans were not actually meant to spend some like eight to 12 hours of our day making profits for someone else. Um, there was a really funny meme that I saw earlier today that was like, you know, if you get, if you're going to get $50,000, but the person you hate most in the world is going to get $100,000, would you do it? And like somebody had replied to it with like, this is called having a job. But it's true, right? Like, yeah, for everything that I get paid, somebody else is making more money off of it than me. Um, and that's that's the reality. That's like, that's the crux of sort of what Marx meant by alienation is that like, we don't actually control the product of our labor. We don't actually control our time. We don't like, you know, when we ask kids, what are you going to do for a living when you grow up, right? When that's the real question that we're asking them, what we're saying to them is you will have to earn money. Can you think of a way to do it that won't make you want to kill yourself every day? Like, which is a really depressing way to phrase it, but I don't know how else to say it other than like, we don't work because we want fulfillment. Hmm. We work because we have to, because if we didn't, we'd starve and wouldn't be able to pay, you know, exorbitant rents in whatever cities that we're living in so that we can have halfway decent lives in the hours of the day that we're not chained to the computer or in front of the classroom or whatever it else it is that we're doing in order to be able to make a living. So like, yeah, the, the way that like now we all look at like the escape from work being another kind of work is itself like so insidious, right? Like I, um, Dolly Parton, you know, the famous song nine to five, which is as old as I am, right? That song was like, comes out in 1980 along with the movie nine to five, which is actually, you know, a very fictionalized comedic story, but it was based in the organizing of real office workers who formed an organization called nine to five. Um, and now last year she rewrites it for the Super Bowl halftime show and it's five to nine and it's an ad for Squarespace, which is, you know, going to charge you <laughs> so that you can have your website for your side hustle so that you can like figure out what your real side hustle is. And it's just like, Dolly, Dolly, come on. You've changed. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, but like capitalism has changed, right? Again, like this is the, the difference between 1980 and now is that in 1980, we could imagine a collective struggle to make those jobs suck less. And now it's just like, well, what's your side hustle so that you no longer have to be an exploited office worker? And it's like, oh, so what way can I figure out? Like there's a Sylvia Federici quote that I have somewhere in the book where she just talks about like nothing so effectively stifles our desires as the transformation of like the things we love into work. That's paraphrase, but like the gist of it, right? It's like, oh, I used to really enjoy whatever. And now it's my job. And like, you know, I took up knitting a few years ago and I occasionally find myself like treating knitting, like it's another work project that I have to do where I'm like, Oh, I have to like finish this thing by the weekend because blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, Sarah, you, you're supposedly doing this cause it's fun. And it's something to do with your hands other than pick up your phone and look at Twitter. Um, so <laughs> that is literally why I started doing it because doom scrolling <laughs> is like, because doom scrolling is like as much physical as anything else, right? Like you, you reach for your phone because you're just used to reaching your phone. I'm gesturing with a fan instead of my phone right now, but the same thing applies. Um, so knitting gave me something to do with my hands other than scrolling Twitter. But yeah, like the way that these things are just like presented as the only way out is somehow doing more work. Um, you know, rather than like, okay, how do we actually like reclaim some of our time from the way that teaching has expanded to take over our lives in a way that like, you know, 20 years ago, you might've worked 
closer to the length of time that the kids are actually in school. And now you're like, oh, I have to go home and I have to do all this and I have to do all this reporting of testing and I have to grade all these assignments because now we suddenly have decided that like, you know, second graders need homework and whatnot. Like it's ridiculous, right? Like you could actually just do a whole lot less of that and kids would actually learn just fine, I'm sure. And they'd probably enjoy it a lot more if they didn't have mountains of friggin' homework. But that's just my thought. I am not an expert in pedagogy, but that's just a take. I, by the way, I just want to say I really love the title of the chapter that you talked about education, which is We Strike Because We Care. Yeah. Because I've always thought that it's really interesting as an educator. I think there's this idea that I'm only interested in the kids in front of me at that age and that's it. And it's like, well, no, I think as an educator, there's a certain investment in the future. Like you have to sort of have this idea that these children I'm teaching are going to be people in the world. And I would quite like that world to be better. And this is kind of part of the way that I can engineer that and make that happen. Um, So it's really interesting, like when teachers strike and, and I've had many issues at my workplace where, you know, we came we we basically said in a in a survey that we would be willing to strike because we are so unhappy and so miserable um and actually you get that kind of backlash well you don't care about the kids because you're striking it's like well actually I want them to enter workplaces that aren't going to treat them as shit as I'm being treated right now so you know that's a a really kind of for me that was a really amazing thing to have read and, and I really liked really like that idea that actually part of being an educator I think is having to sort of have one foot in the future like one Mm -hmm. foot in well actually these kids are entering this world and what world do I want to enter um and how I mean sorry I'm gonna actually turn this into a question now and not just say how much I loved it (laughs) (laughs) the the thing that I kind of where where did you what kind of inspired you for that being the title of your chapter for education? Oh, I mean, I mean, the teachers, right? Like this is um, the other thing that I was thinking about as you were talking there, right? Was the Chicago teacher slogan is like our, our, you know, our working conditions are our students' learning conditions, right? Like, again, if we are exhausted and stressed and there's no toilet paper in the bathrooms and the classrooms aren't air conditioned or now like the kids are getting COVID and all of these things, like these are also things that affect the kids. If the kids don't have time for recess anymore, they don't get to play outside during the school day and they're just sitting there all day in overcrowded classrooms, like those are not good learning conditions either. And so like the short term loss of learning that's caused by being on strike or like, for instance, the the short term, supposedly short term, although the government continues to just like give everybody COVID on purpose. So, um, you know, the short term loss of in-person learning to try to stem the pandemic um, is supposed to make up for like, you know, not having their parents and grandparents die, stuff like that. Um, not having your teacher die, uh, you know. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's really, really been amazing to watch sort of teachers stand up to this after, you know, decades of this narrative. And I'm sure it's the same over here that like teachers are the problem and teachers are the reason that our kids aren't achieving. And like, you know, the Japanese or the Chinese or whoever the hell we're fear-mongering about this week. Um, These days it's China. We're really into fear-mongering about China and America now, but it used Mm. to be Japan. And before that, it was the Russians, obviously. Um, 
you know, that it's the teacher's fault that we're not keeping up and therefore the teacher should work longer hours and harder and then somehow also do that with like more kids crammed into a classroom and less funding. And, you know, the No Child Left Behind, which was um, George W. Bush's education program, which basically like if your school got bad scores on the set of metrics that it introduced, they would take funding away from it, which is like, that doesn't make any sense, guys. Like if the school is not doing great on these metrics, you would think it would need more help, not less. But it's like, nope, you're being punished for not doing everything possible with no money by taking even more money away. It's a similar system here, yeah. by the way. Like yeah, you yeah. Get no, a, it's, a, it's, you know, uh, special measures, it's exactly the same deal. Mm-hmm. Because you're labelled as special measures as school, therefore the number of students going to your school reduces, therefore the funding for your school then goes mm-hmm. down. So it's by by a different cycle, it's the same system. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right. So you look at all of that and you're just like, this is ridiculous. And so finally, like the, you know, the last 10 years or so, like we've been seeing this real effort by educators in the States to just like refuse that. And so um, I set that chapter during the Los Angeles teacher strike because I was that was what was going on at the moment that I was reporting on it. And I went to LA for the strike and I love LA and I love the LA teachers. And that school district is so huge. Like I keep meaning actually to try to like map it onto a map of England, just to be like, this Mm. is like kind of the lower half of it's like 960 square mile school district. It's bonkers how big it is. Uh, And I was trying to like drive to all different corners of it to talk to teachers from like different schools and different places to hear their stories. It was great. And, you know, this is a massive, massive school district to get the amount of teachers out on strike that they got in this huge spread out space where there's really not functional public transit at all. Um, And to just steadily hold that out and hold it strong. They had to build all of these infrastructures into the union to be able to be strong enough to do that. Um, everything from like building apps to communicate with everybody so that like teachers could be in two-way communication with headquarters all the time on the picket line um, to just like building democratic structures in the schools back up. So there were actually delegates in every school who were really organizing um, all of that stuff that they did in order to have this union that won this amazing amount of stuff in that strike. And then also was the first union when the pandemic hit to get like a letter of agreement with the district saying, these are the conditions under which we will teach. These are the conditions under which we'll return to the classroom. Um, and they did all of that because they just had a strong, strong, strong union that had just beaten the pants off of the school district that really wanted to not only, um, not only sort of beat the union in a normal contract fight, but they really were aiming to privatize a school district the same way they had done in New Orleans, um, which is a story of, of disaster capitalism. After Hurricane Katrina, they basically came in, privatized the entire school district and fired most of the teachers, um, 80 something percent of whom were black women. So that's what it looks like when you get these people in charge. Um, yeah. And so, You know, when they were on strike, one of the signs that I saw the most often is like, we strike because we love our kids. We strike because we care. Because over and over and over again, they were like, this isn't about the money. Um, And that's actually why at the end of that chapter, not to spoil it for people who haven't read it yet, but um, when I was sitting with Rosa, who is the teacher that I sort of profile in that chapter, and we were sitting in the union office and it was so full of meetings and everything going on on like day five of the strike that we were just like sitting in a hallway somewhere. Um, 
and we've been talking about all of her activism and her organizing and she's just incredible. And I finally sort of asked her like, how has it been for you? How have you like felt this week? And she was just like, you know, this is for me and it's okay that it's for me. She's like, yeah, I care about the kids and yeah, I'm organizing with my students and yeah, like we care about the school district and we care about all of these things. And also I'm a single mom and my life is hard and I do deserve better. And I like cried. I'm like tearing up again, talking about it because it just like, you know, um, because yeah, like, yes, we care about the kids and we care about all of those things. And also, also it is absolutely right that teachers get to make demands for themselves. Would you, would you say... Um, yeah, because there's, yeah, obviously that, yeah, the, all of the conditions that they're working under in Chicago and, and across the US and here and across the world, um, that, yeah, these conditions obviously are not the ones that would be ideal for teaching, ideal for learning. And, you know, those are the ones that you can actually fight for, especially in the UK, we have a bit of difficulty with some. Um, but where am I going with this? you're already overworked and you're already um, in a very difficult situation. That's why you want to strike. And what's incredible and beautiful about when these things do all come together, especially what um, happened in Chicago, is the fact that these people love what they do and then they also put all that love into the striking as well. And it's a hard, hard journey, one that, yeah, can often feel like it, it won't succeed and then there are times when it doesn't. And I think, you know, for the friends that I've had who actually made it out on strike, it's an incredible thing, but it's also a huge amount to ask people. And sometimes I think, uh, you know, when when there is a struggle and there's sort of a call to potentially strike, sometimes these do, things do fall apart because those conversations with people just are not ready or willing to maybe put themselves on the line, but also maybe they know how much work it will be. And um, so I think finding that love in it that you talked about when you realise that, yeah, that's almost like the, the bit that's for you, you're working even more, but you're you're getting the swing of it and loving it is, is the only thing that makes it, holds it all together really, which sort of, I don't know, it's like a complex thing um, sometimes. Yeah, the fact that on the one hand you're not supposed to be forced to love your work or not have that used against you, but equally sometimes in the right situation, it's the only thing driving you through. Um, but also it's the solidarity as well that makes it even more worthwhile, I suppose. Yeah. And I think, um, the thing about solidarity, right. Is that it's the thing that all of this love your work rhetoric is really trying to beat out of us. Um, it's trying to say that you should have sort of this individual one-on-one -on -one relationship with your job and that if you don't love your job, it is an individual failing of you, Charlie, Lauren, Anu, me, that we don't love our jobs well enough, not a collective failure of the structures of this thing to be functional. And like, you know, I'm a journalist, you all are teachers, we are all doing work that I think even in our, you know, happy, fully automated luxury communist utopia would still need to be done. Um, I don't, you know, there are some jobs that I, I like to play a version of, you know, shag, marry, kill with work. And it's kind <laughs> of like, should this exist? Should, the, should this, would this work exist in, you know, our utopia? Um, it's, you know, it's kind of like, a, you know, do we abolish it? Do we keep it and restructure it? Um, 
you know, like what, what do we imagine? And like, some of these things are things that need to be done. You would need to teach kids and we would want to do it in some sort of collective fashion, not to individualize it on everybody because that would be terrible. So we do have a sort of different relationship to it, to, you know, people who are working in coal mines, which like, we absolutely need to stop digging coal out of the earth. Otherwise we're going to set the planet on fire even faster than we already are. So you do have a different relationship with the job than people who are doing something that, you know, or working in McDonald's, right? Like we would all, you know, just, I mean, you know, I like deep fried greasy food as much as the next, you know, adult human being, but like, you know, McDonald's, whatever, we don't care about McDonald's. It can go away tomorrow. Um, so it does require of us this sort of willingness and ability to think about what it would be like if it was better what it would be like if we could design it, what it would be like if, you know, all of you got to design what teaching would be like rather than, you know, whoever it is in, in this God awful government, um, that gets to be in charge of this stuff. <laughs> and like, who have no educational experience by the way. Right. Exactly. Who just have mm. no idea what they're doing. And so, right. I, I've been talking to a lot of nurses lately because, um, unsurprisingly nurses have not had a great couple of years and in so many places, right. They're just like feeling it. And in the U S of course, the system is totally fragmented. And so I've been talking a lot to the nurses who are still on strike. They've been on strike for, Oh my God, it was 115 days, two weeks ago. So like 130 days they've been on strike, um, in Massachusetts at this place that is owned by a for-profit corporation. So it's a for-profit hospital. Um, this corporation bought up a hospital that had been there in the community for decades and just, you know, now they own it and they just siphon money out of it. And so the nurses have been on strike and the same, the same thing very much applies to nurses when they go on strike, right? That they're like, look, like we're doing this because the conditions we are in are not safe for our patients. This is not good patient care. We would not be out here on the picket line in a Massachusetts winter being covered in snow if we thought that this, you know, we didn't think that this was serious. We didn't think that this was important. And yeah, and that is bringing about so many conversations in the U.S. about like what would healthcare look like if we ran it? And it was actually designed by healthcare providers to actually provide healthcare rather than to make money for a bunch of Texas billionaires, um, because that's what they're doing right now in this hospital. And so, yeah, I think that's the thing that you sort of capture by going on strike in a way is that sort of moment you're, you're claiming your time back from the work to think about like, how would this be if it was different? Um, and that's what I think is so sort of lovely about those moments you know, on the picket line and that, that kind of solidarity. Um, yeah, that's really interesting because I think that you've spoken about like how long the nurses, uh, have been on strike for and uh, sort of the successes of like the teacher strikes in LA and, and Chicago. And I just wonder if you think, because we often talk about it like, oh God, look at like, they're sort of like our heroes as educators here. We look to the like CTU and stuff like that. And sort of, um, and I guess that's why uh, Jay McAlevey has sort of extended her program of uh, sort of organising for power and things because people over here have started to take note. I just wonder if you think like, what is it? Like why, you know, how come American sort of, like workers have sort of gone through the looking glass and we're just like on the other side of it like I don't know is it is it a combination of like 
really how bad things are there because we know like healthcare is terrible over in the US we know (laughs) like um you know like in terms of like maternity packages for women in terms of like institutional racism it feels like it is it is a much bigger issue but um it also feels like here we're still at that stage where it's like oh yeah I hate work like you said it sucks and whatever but my manager's really nice and um you know, and then, you know, my manager, I recently had a meeting with a manager and she came in with a, this the horrible new proposal that was going to ruin everyone's life because it, it we had no time to implement it. And she was like, um, look, I'm, I'm being positive here. What we don't want is negativity. So there's all this toxic positivity that's still, yeah, it's still sort of like, and, and people do feel like, oh, am I just being a bit shit about this? And, um, you know, and then and then it's like, well, if you're feeling a bit shit about it, it's your fault. Maybe you need to do mm-hmm. a well-being course. So there's all this kind of stuff that we're still working through. Yeah. And I guess my question is, like, have have these big unions in in America um, just are they just better at the sort of political education? Like, presumably that's a that's a kind of a, a kind of um, co-committant program, like of just like actually organising on the ground. But you've you've got to, you've got to realise that your boss, you know, that your boss doesn't love you, that work doesn't love you, that there's mm-hmm. a real class kind of class war war going mm-hmm. on here. Yeah. And and is that something that you've seen really really work in when you've talked to various organisers and stuff? So I think it's really, really easy to overstate how great things are in the U.S. They're really, 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 really bad. We have half the union density per capita that you guys have here. Half. Okay. It is really not good. And because there are a couple of really good examples of really strong, powerful unions does not mean that it is actually better. In fact, it's in many cases, it's much worse. Um, okay. And part of the reason that like some of the, that we sort of turn to these same few unions over and over again is that like the picture is so bleak elsewhere. Mm. Um, teachers had just been through so much that when they finally in a few of these places started to just say like, we've had enough, um, you know, and, and what happened in a lot of these places is that the organizing really grew out of the financial crisis. Um, so the Chicago teachers, when they started the rank and file caucus that ended up taking over the union and is still in power now, um, it started as a reading group. And it started as a reading group reading Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine after the financial collapse and after, you know, there was this um, really incredible worker occupation of this factory, Republic Windows and Doors in Chicago. And if you look back at some of the videos, some of the teachers who ended up being leaders in what became the caucus that took over the union, like Jesse Sharkey, who is the current CTU president, was at the Republic Windows and Doors occupation. So like little things like that actually laid groundwork that like nobody sort of expected would be what they are. But I think because like every American on the left has a podcast um, and a lot of people (laughs) over here listen to them. um, And I, you know, I say that I have a podcast, um, but like it, it, the, the American left is very good at talking about itself. And I think this is, you know, it's, it's a offshoot of America being the, the media hegemon. um, And it, but it often leads to this perception that like things are really great in the US. And for instance, like the video games workers, I came over here to write about video games workers organizing because the video games workers here formed one of the first unions in the world for video games workers. Whereas in the US, they're like struggling to bring together a couple hundred people to have a conversation about maybe possibly someday forming a union. Um, And that's just, you know, it depends on the industry. 
the the teachers I think got to where they got to because they were it was so bad and this is the same thing that's happening right now with nurses is just like the healthcare system is such a nightmare that it's just leading to all of these um I was talking to a colleague of mine a few months ago during this the um winter lockdown and he was just talking about the nurses strikes as like PTSD strikes like people are just so traumatized by what they've gone through that they're just like enough we can't um they're just refusing to sort of let this get imposed on them anymore because it's just been really 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 bad um and there's not even though we did have some of the sort of like clap for healthcare workers and whatever um there's not the same kind of national investment in like the idea of the NHS, right? Because we don't have anything remotely like it. Um, and so I think that like in healthcare, at least that seems to mitigate against some things. Um, whereas, you know, when you were working for a multi-million dollar Texas for-profit corporation, you're just like, yeah, whatever, whatever you say about loving this place, like we know you're full of it, you know? Um, and it's still like very rare for nurses to be out on an open-ended strike. Usually even in the States, they go out for one or two days and the hospital will hire scab nurses for a full week and lock them out for the rest of the week. So, you know, I don't want to be that American who's just like, it's wonderful and everything is magical. Um, but that said, I do think that one of the things that's happened in the places where, things are strong is that the unions are politically engaged and they are doing political education. Um, so in New York, after Hurricane Sandy in 2012, there had just been a sort of left-wing takeover of the nurses union in New York. And they immediately got involved in doing mutual aid work and political work around the hurricane and sort of build back better and the healthcare system and did really incredible work that ended up becoming sort of a cornerstone of all of these fights that they had going forward about like saving hospitals from closing. Um, And all of that helped them build not only sort of an analysis of like, we care about our patients, but also like we care about our patients and this piecemeal for-profit system is failing them in so many ways. And here's why, and here's where the profit is being extracted. And here's where like the consultants are coming in to talk about, you know, how we should be more like lean production and like lean healthcare, which is ridiculous, right? Like it's not producing a car guys, Uh, but they talk about lean healthcare. So like to, to understand all of it politically, I think has been a really, really important component of it. And to sort of understand the way that the structures are bearing down on you. Um, So this is why like the reading groups and stuff have been such an important component of so much of the rank and file teacher organizing. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting that you mentioned the, the, the kind of the language, you know, of, of, like leanness mm-hmm. um basically how much how much a manager so manage how much is managerialism managerialism even to blame for um why so many people hate their jobs like <laughs> we were just talking about it before before we started recording and I kind of said oh I want to ask you about like yeah, about obviously there's there's an underlying ideology, but the language that we use when we talk about um, patients or, or students and and how now we talk about efficiency and um, output and stuff, and we and we do we trying to we we trying to encourage competition, you know, even between our little um, 
you know, our, our little ones. Uh, whereas like, you, you know, the reasons that we often go into these jobs is because we have a sense of, uh, of of what it means to care and to nurture and our values are about sort of like those solidarity etc like is this a is this a pervasive thing that um that has changed the way that we that that we work and and the reasons why we hate work yeah i mean i think that the the way that like the lean healthcare thing or you know this introduction of all of this testing and, and metrics into education um is absolutely just like making these jobs more miserable right and it's really funny because that sort of thing comes alongside the same sort of corporate speak about like how to encourage passion in your employees right yeah. um, there's a really great there's a really great piece that Kathy Weeks wrote a few years ago um, around Valentine's Day. Actually, they did a whole pe- a whole series of things on love at the Verso blog on Valentine's Day. And hers was about the way that essentially um, managers are trying to encourage people to have a romance with their jobs. And she read <laughs> a bunch of the management literature. And sure enough, right, it's all there. And mm. so, yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because like at the same time as they're ramping up the sort of ratchet on how um how you have to treat children like little outputs and, and, you know, you have to, they have to all score whatever on tests, even though also you have to have like a curve on the test so that like some kids have to fail, which none of that makes any sense. Right. Um, but like that at the same time is coming along with like this increased, like you should love your job and this is how we motivate you to love your job. And don't you love your job enough to like stay three extra hours, like whatevering for the test. Um, and those things sort of come alongside one another so that, you know, if you complain about the increased, you know, sort of datification of kids and, and whatever, then you're just like a terrible person who doesn't love the kids enough. And that's just the weirdest thing, right? I was literally, I remember being in a meeting when um, this new multi-academy trust took over my previous school And the guy that was our sort of interim head basically turned, he said, yeah, I hate it when I use, when they use the phrase exam factory, because ultimately, you know, them getting good grades is what helps them out in life. And they're trying to sell it from a social justice way. They're literally trying to use social justice as a way to sell their basically marketization of education. And and I just remember it's like standing in that meeting thinking, but I do hate the term exam factory because school isn't just about but those exams. Actually, the exams aren't for them, they're for you. Like actually that kid's exam isn't for them. The result, yeah, okay, it may get into college and whatever, but ultimately them sitting the exam benefits you really more than them, mostly. Um and it's just a really interesting thing. And, and you yeah. talking about this idea that a side hustle and this idea that kids should be constantly doing homework and constantly working outside of work. It's like, see, overtime. We're making you do overtime. Come on, come on. Overtime's normalised. Let's normalise it in childhood, shall we? And I don't know, it just seems like there's this whole like narrative where we are. I I, I get frustrated with the idea that I'm... I'm not training a worker. I'm tra- I'm educating a child, and those lines are becoming increasingly blurred. Like absolutely, um, and that is that is quite interesting. And and the other thing, and we talk about this, is the way that in terms of sort of different schools, and I've seen the uh, same in the US. We have private schools, um, like fee-paying schools, and, and all the rest of it. But like that idea that like, you know, army recruiters will come into, they won't be going to what 
you know, they'll, they'll be getting the officers from their private schools, but they'll be getting their privates from their, you know, their public, their, the, the worst schools, the schools that are going to have the kids that aren't going to get the grades. And therefore I do, I, I, my personal take is at the moment, like the system is designed in a way to create compliance, create compliant children that know just enough to do the work and they're into the habits where they will do extra work because they've always done it. And that's what they've been told to do from when they were a child, but we don't want them questioning. We don't want those skills where they can critically analyze the world around them. And I, I just wonder if it's like, how is it in journalism? Like how does that compare to journalism at the moment? Because if I'm honest, <laughs> sometimes I feel like, like mainstream journalism talking about, like I'm not talking about things like Navarra Media, et cetera, but I'm talking about your kind of mainstream journalism. Like sometimes I read The Guardian and it makes me want to smash my head against a wall because it's just like, sorry, are you all kind of, did you all just come from the same womb here? Like, is there any kind of questioning on anything? And I just wonder if that's something that you've noticed that's pervades your industry too. Oh, yeah. I mean, metric are being introduced everywhere, right? In journalism, it's just about clicks, right? How many clicks did your article get? Um, And that, oh God, I never worked at Gawker or any of those places. But um, a few years ago, I was at a conference and this researcher was talking about, she had done a bunch of research on metrics in journalism. And she was talking about being at, was it Gawker or HuffPost? One of their offices where they just had like a giant TV screen at the front of the room that was just constantly updating in real time how many people were clicking on different articles. And I was just like, this is terrible. And I worked at one place that was like that. Um, We didn't have, well, we didn't have an office. So if we had had an office, my boss probably would have loved to have like a giant screen over our heads, but he was too cheap to have an office. So we all worked from home. And, but it was, you were constantly being judged by how many clicks your story got, even though we knew that like the formula to write a story, like the the story that I wrote that got the most clicks, which was like 2 million or something like that was like the 10 worst right-wing governors ranked, you know? And it's just like a stupid list and like, sure. Yeah. I guess that was like some useful way to deliver to people information about like, you know, the awful legislation that Chris Christie was introducing in New Jersey or whatever, but like, honestly, it was so dumb. And yet it gets the clicks. And so you're just like, yay, that gets the clicks for the advertisers, which we can then, you know, sell our whatever to the advertisers. Um, Although these days, like even that link has been mostly broken by Facebook. So all the ads just go on Facebook and Twitter now rather than on. um... Anyway, so the, the way that like there are always sort of ways to quantify things that really shouldn't be and can't be quantified. Um, and like, I'm one of the things I like about being freelance is that like, I'm not on staff and I don't have to look at those numbers and I don't really know how many people read something that I wrote, which is a little depressing, I guess, but also like, whatever, I don't worry about it, which is great. Um, I worry a little bit about it when I have a big story come out, if it hasn't been like shared enough on social media, I'll be like, why don't you guys love me anymore? But, (laughs) But like, yeah, what I really try to think of is like what's meaningful about the story that I did was like you know during the first lockdown um, a bunch of employers who had given hazard pay for a little while to their workers were then like yanking it back and I spoke to this woman who worked at this grocery store chain in West Virginia and she had not only like they had canceled the pandemic pay but she actually got a letter saying she had to pay back 
some unintentionally like overpaid hazard pay. And I was like, this is bonkers. And I wrote about that. And then like shortly afterward, the union emailed me and was like, they're walking it back. They're walking it back. And it it really helps that you wrote about it. And it's like, okay, like that, that feels like a win to me. Like, I don't know how many people read that article, Mm. but what happened, you know, is that like the company realized that this was going to be bad press. And so, you know, it was the union who, you know, reached out to me and the union who was organizing around this behind the scenes, but like having a good article is often part of a very useful, you know, media strategy and and an overarching strategy to get what you want out of the boss. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think is meaningful, which is impossible to quantify and like hell a lot of companies don't want that because they that company's probably an advertiser and they don't want them to be mad at you for writing a bad story about their awful labor practices so you know the type of journalism i do is not beloved by the for-profit press for very obvious reasons (laughs) (laughs) long bit rain (laughs) um yeah i was thinking about yeah, sort of round up questions. Uh, is there any either of you have any questions that as last questions on your lists to bring up or the ones that might round it off? Pressure, pressure. Um, I guess like another of the 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 podcast crew um, wanted to ask the question about whether. And I suppose this is kind of like, okay, I'm going to try and paraphrase it so that, it's, so that it is a roundup question, but is the key to like going beyond work is love um, to actually experiencing like true love or allowing ourselves to like live in the world and experience human interactions as love as opposed to like what we get from work as love is the key to that like basically realizing that work is shit and should that be the the liberating force or is or is there like is there is there another is there another first step to actually going beyond work as love yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm sort of agnostic on how people should feel about their jobs. Honestly, like I, <laughs> I I I like what I do. Sometimes, other times, I want to tear my hair out and scream things that are unintelligible, and my flatmates would probably be terrified. But like, um, yeah, because I I don't think ultimately that like the 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 way you feel about your job is going to be the the thing that changes it. I think what we do to change that relationship is going to be the thing. And you can still love being a teacher and also be like, yeah, but the way that I'm being asked to teach is terrible. And also I need more time off because I'm exhausted and I would like to have a life. And all of those things, like those things can be, um, they can come at a job you absolutely loathe and they can come at a job that you pretty much like. Um, but the, the, question is is the sort of political realization that like this is not actually what life is about this is this is a thing that we do because we sort of have to um because capital requires accumulation and also because like we live in a society and so you know the tension is as a teacher is that like again you do do work that like we do want to have exist it is not a job we would abolish come the revolution um it's just a job we would like probably organize very differently And so those questions, like we sort of need space to ask them. And one of the challenges of doing that in 
this world where work has just sort of expanded to fill all available time is like finding the time to imagine what it would look mm. like if it was different. Definitely. So I no, think no. the word agnostic was a really good word to use for that. I think that's definitely, yeah, useful phrasing because yeah, you don't have to come to a, you don't have to hate yourself because you yeah. want to love your job, but if you don't love your job, that's fine too. Right. Uh, but it's also maybe, yeah, come to, I guess, I think this book, but I think along the way as well, it's already, it starts to solidify for me more, even in the last couple of years, um, how it's not just about you. I think you, I used to be very self-conscious about what other people thought about my job. So the mm-hmm. jobs that I would choose for myself, like, so if I'm not going to be a teacher anymore, what I might be, feeling self-conscious that, you know, even for a little while, if I was unemployed or if I was working, uh, you know, my minimum wage job, how that might be. So, you know, when you talk to, you know, people and, and explain your job, suddenly your worth might be less. And even though that might be quite a nice cafe job and actually everyone there is lovely if, mm-hmm. and you're not planning on being there forever. But if other people might judge you once upon a time, that would be to me a very depressing thing that would affect how much I loved it, even though that show don't have nothing to do with it. And I think the team with all that, yeah, it's it's not about other people seeing your job as being prestige. You'll never get love from it and that will never actually give you fulfillment. Even if you get it, it, it will all just crumble away. And another side of that, having jobs that appear on the outside that you love it like I used to think that those jobs must be loved on the inside and through your book especially but as I learn along the way um you know having a job as an artist even if you're famous having a job even in academia that's another that was just another shot for me another excellent chapter learning that academia that used to be the thing that I used to be like well if you're smart and then just so smart and you just learn at a school and then <laughs> a, a university and you get smarter and smarter and then you get happier and happier and more and more fulfilled. Turns out that's not true. Um, not that, you know, academics can still have amazing fulfillment, but often they get that actually outside of work because work is very, very stressful and the whole university thing is is scary, uh, the current state of things. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with that really... Um, summarized for me so many things that I've been sort of wondering about for a long time so thank you thank you yeah and thank you honestly I love the book and I and I plug it but I, I, it was really amazing and it really spoke to me because I was a massive workaholic in my first sort of five years or so in the job it hasn't made me it didn't give me the things that I thought and to have sort of so many things articulated through so many sectors as well. And again, as Charlie's already referenced and Annie's already referenced, like sectors that I hadn't even considered, you know, especially things like art and the creative industries that we kind of assume can't really be marketized in the same way. Um, but to kind of have it have it there articulated, yeah, it was really, really amazing. And, and I just want to say a big Thank you and congratulations on an amazing book. Yeah. And I always find that you get to the end of the podcast, um, I might miss the name of the book, not that it'd be all the way through, but um, it's Work, Work, Work Won't Love You Back by Sarah Jaffe, an amazing read. Where Where would you recommend people buy from if you have any choices or if they could avoid Amazon? Well, you can buy signed copies from Houseman's here in the UK for now because I went in and signed a stack of books for them and they will ship it to you, uh, I think, across the UK. Um, So that's a good place and also a wonderful local bookstore that hosted an event for me. And um, you can buy from... 
your favorite local bookshop, which probably desperately mm. needs people buying from it after the last year and a half of hell. Excellent. No, well put. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Jeffy. It's been absolutely a pleasure. Uh, once again, we've been joined by Lauren, by Anu, and myself, Charlie. And thank you so much for listening, getting to the end. Uh, and enjoy your evening. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Mm. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Requires Improvement. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on Twitter at RequiresPod. We'd also love it if you subscribe and share and even send us a message and tell us your thoughts. Thank you.